And as you are, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. For those of you who are not used to seeing me with my spectacles, I uh, just wanted to look smarter today, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> just get that out of the way so it's not distracting. <laughs> Matthew 24. Uh, for our youngest of worshipers, if you have not grabbed one already, there is a red folder in the back either with your name on it or you can grab a blank one. Our children's ministry director has worked hard to gather those for you so to help you during the sermon and during worship. So Matthew chapter 24, we're starting in verse 29. Fasten your seatbelts. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. And then would you read with me all together this last verse? Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. That's in place of, this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) You know, sometimes it takes a long time for for something to happen, to come to fruition, right? That home improvement project that was supposed to take a couple days can turn into weeks and months, sometimes years. It, It can take years of faithful teaching and parenting before you begin to see the fruits of your labors. It can take decades of planning and working to fully develop a broken city or even country. December 1st, 2019. That's when we started this series on on Matthew, this journey through the gospel according to Matthew. I know I was there. And, And we began with this first verse, verse 1, Matthew 1, verse 1. And he writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's who we're dealing with here. The great king who would have dominion and the son of Abraham who would expand his kingdom, who would gather in the nations. You see, the Jews were awaiting people. They waited They waited hundreds of years for their promised Messiah. And what we'll see from our passage this morning is that the wait was nearly over for them. The Messiah had come, and he was accomplishing at that very moment what he promised he would do. Now, as you read these verses, you might not have gathered that idea from the verses we just read. Maybe the only thing you heard or saw was end times. The great day. Jesus' second coming. And so, 
what you're about to hear might be different than what you've been taught. It might be different than how you've read these verses in the past. But what I hope to show you is that a biblically faithful reading of this passage is not just different than what we've experienced. It's, it's better. It's much more faithful. It's much richer. And it leads to a much better life. So, if you would allow me, before we get into the sermon proper, I'd like to give just a little bit of intro so that we can just hear the rest of the sermon better. I'd like to get verse 29 just out of the way, so to speak. Let's address it. Let's address the elephant in the room so that we're not just all wondering about it for the rest of the sermon. Let's address it. Let's talk about it. And then let's see how a, a biblically faithful interpretation of that text leads us to understand the rest of it better. So here's verse 29 for the second time. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, it even has the word tribulation in it, man. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of heaven will be shaken. I mean, that just sounds like end time stuff, right? That sounds like when Jesus comes back, right? Yes and no. Because whenever you you are seeking to biblically interpret a text, you can't just ask yourself, what does this mean to me? You can't just ask yourself, how am I understanding this in the original English? You, You have to ask yourself, how did the first audience understand this text? How did they hear it? Through the, through the experiences and through the other texts that they were far more familiar with than we are. So, one more time, we're going we're gonna to look at some of the phrases in that verse, but w- this time we're going to hear it with the ear of a Jew who was far more familiar with Old Testament than we are. Passages like Isaiah chapter 13. In Isaiah chapter 13, God warned his people, For the stars of the heavens and the constellations will not give their light. Sound familiar? The sun will be dark at its rising. Sound familiar? The moon will not shed its light. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like verse 29. So the question is, what did Isaiah mean in Isaiah chapter 13? Isaiah was talking about the impending destruction of Babylon. The destruction of Babylon that Israel would see in their lifetime during that time. One more. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4. Isaiah here is warning the nations, not just Babylon, but the nations of their impending destruction. And then he focuses it to Edom. And he writes these words. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll all their host shall fall. Looks a lot like our verse in verse 29. This isn't language that was special to the end times. I wonder if it makes more sense since Isaiah was talking about things that would happen pretty soon. I wonder if Jesus was talking about things that would happen pretty soon as well. Especially since, and it's not on the slides yet, Especially since in verse 34, we read, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. So, thank you for allowing me that intro. Because if the point is not 
to address the great day of judgment. And I hope I have proven that and will continue to prove that. Then we have to ask ourselves, what is the point? Funny enough, the point is Jesus. The emphasis is not on the difficult experiences that the Jews would face, but rather what was true despite those difficult experiences. And what I hope we will see, what is true, is that Jesus is given dominion. Jesus expands his dominion. And Jesus guarantees his dominion. What is true and what we will see is that Jesus is given dominion, he expands his dominion, and he guarantees his dominion. So let's look first at how he's received his dominion, how he's given dominion. Some would have us believe that our only hope is in the future. Terrible things will happen, but don't worry because of verses like verse 30. Jesus will, we will see Jesus in verse 30. Come on the clouds with great power and glory. So our only hope is to the future, right? Except four verses later, what do we see? In verse 34, this generation will not die until they see all of these things take place. This generation that was alive listening to Jesus for the first time would not die until the sun went black until the stars fell from heaven, until they would see Jesus coming on the clouds with great power and glory, all of those things would take place in the lifetime of this first audience. This isn't something we are awaiting. This is something that has already happened. This can't be talking about Jesus' return. But if that's true, in what way would they see In what way would they see Jesus coming on the clouds? I suggest to you, in the same way that Jesus himself says they would see him just two chapters later. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. When the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus responds, You have said so. You're right. But I tell you from now on, you will... See, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Keep that up there one, for one moment. So, if we are to understand this literally, the high priest could see into the throne room of heaven and he could see Jesus seated at the right hand of God. If we are to understand this literally, then For the past 2,000 years, we, we have been able to see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. I would suggest to you again that it is more biblically faithful to understand this passage, to understand Matthew chapter 24, as saying that they would physically see things with their eyes that point to a reality they could not physically see. Let me explain that. Uh, probably about a year and a half ago, there was a moment when you went to the store and you wanted to buy paper products like toilet paper. And what did you see? Empty shelves, right? That's what you saw with your eyes. And to many of you, it pointed to the reality that people had lost their minds. You probably walked through the store and if you're anything like me, you said, 
I see that people have lost their minds. I couldn't see it, but I could see certain things that pointed to that. Or it's like when an archaeologist says to his apprentice, you can see this is where the king conducted his business. Well, unless you can see the dead, you're not literally seeing it. But the things that you could see, the bones, the fossilized furniture, the patterns in the ground, how it was all laid out, those things I could see, and they pointed to a reality I could not see. By the evidence of what I could see, I am able to see something I cannot see. The high priest couldn't see Jesus sitting on the throne, but he would see things that pointed to that reality. And so the question is, what did the disciples and the Jews see, and what did it point to? Well, the Jews didn't see a shortage of toilet paper, but they did see Jesus healing. They did see Jesus teaching with authority. They did see Jesus suffer at Calvary. They did see Jesus die as a criminal. And as we confess this morning, over 500 witnesses saw Jesus rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. What does all of that point to? If you are a Jew and you are very familiar with your Old Testament, it points to a prophecy we should all be familiar with, Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel writes this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That same title we read in Matthew 24. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The disciples are being told this entire chapter by Jesus that the temple would be destroyed. What does that mean to you if you are a Jew, if you are a disciple? Well, the temple for you signifies the presence of God. The temple signifies the presence of God. And so to see it destroyed, to hear that not one stone would stand upon the other is to hear God is no longer with us. It's to hear hopelessness. What's going through your head if you're a Jew and you're hearing this? Sadness, despair, anxiety. But Jesus here is not prophesying about the last days. No, he's doing so much, something so much better. He's indicating that the long-awaited Son of Man, the long-awaited Messiah was here. He's finally arrived. Yes, the temple would be destroyed, but something much, much better it would take its place. That's why we read in Matthew 28 Jesus' own explanation of what had happened. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have dominion. And as we just sang, the hope for the disciples was the same hope you have. That the way of the Lord, His dominion is right. Because though He leads us through pain, what is our hope? He will restore us again. That is the hope of the Savior who has dominions. Just like the disciples would face great tribulation 
but would see Jesus given his dominion, we can also look at our own lives and see how God has been in charge every step of the way. Though Satan attempts to thwart his plans, God remains faithful. Jesus continues to bring in his people. Jesus continues to save. And even when we don't see or we don't understand God's plans, we trust that the heart of the Lord is good. We trust that no mind can comprehend all the blessing He intends for His people. We don't trust in our plans. We don't trust in our interpretation of God's plans. We trust that Jesus is given dominion. And we trust and we rejoice in the fact that our Lord is King. Amen. And speaking of the heart of God, (laughs) what's the first thing that Jesus does once He has given dominion? We see it in verse... 19, right after, verse, uh, verse 18 of Matthew 28, we see this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and what does he say right after? Go therefore and make disciples. As soon as Jesus is given dominion, he expands his dominion. As soon as he is given dominion, he expands his dominion. On account of Jesus being king, on account of the fullness of time arriving Go and do what you were always meant to do. Christian, isn't that better than constantly watching the news for signs of Jesus' arrival? Isn't that so much better than being anxiety-ridden over when Jesus will return? Isn't that so much better than constantly looking for articles online? that point to signs of Jesus' arrival. Isn't that better? No one's here to, to ridicule you. I was brought up under that. I was raised in a family that watched the news and said, ha, see, you can tell by all the bad things happening, you can tell Jesus is coming pretty soon. Maybe. But if we're to believe Jesus' own words, no one knows the day or the hour. And we are not instructed to wait for the Lord in that manner. We are instructed to wait for the Lord in a very different manner. Because what we are told is that we have entered a time where Satan is bound. We are told that we live in a time where Jesus is sitting on his throne. And we are right now in the time of verse 31. Where Jesus is sending out his angels. Or better yet, interpreted messengers in verse 31 in order to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other you know the beauty of this passage this idea that jesus is is given dominion and at once expands it it it, it's not just something new that jesus came up with it's actually at the very heart of the bible It's been going on since the very beginning. So let's go to the beginning. Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God says to Abram, In you, all, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of them. I'm going to use you, Israel, in order to explode. In order to go out and spread my image, spread the good news of the gospel. It continues in Daniel chapter 7, where we've already seen 
that to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom in Daniel chapter 7. But what do we read right after? There's a reason for it. There's a reason Jesus is given dominion. And it's so that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. There is no partiality in the kingdom of God. People from different countries, races, different economic standings, people with completely different ways of thinking, these all compose the people of God. Now, what does that mean for you? A lot of the teachers I know became teachers because they had a good teacher. Right? They, they sat in a classroom. They saw the difference that a... I'm so sorry about my microphone. I don't know what's going on. They, they sat in a classroom. They saw a teacher that had a positive experience on them. And they decided, I want to be part of that. I, I want to be, be the teacher that you were to me. I want to become involved in that. A lot of you parents who are coaches... You, you saw the positive effect that sports and, and a good coach could have on your life, so you decided to become part of that. Or you can, instead of asking your teachers, you can ask me. I became a pastor because I saw firsthand the negative effects of bad teaching, of bad preaching, of bad shepherding. I saw the anxiety that it caused in the hearts of my family members. I saw the, the guilt that they were constantly ridden with. And then one day, I went to a different church with a different pastor, one who preached grace and mercy, one who, who preached that we have everything we need in Christ, one who preached the truth and fullness of the gospel. And I said, I want to be like you. I want to be part of that. I, I want to be involved in opening the eyes and hearts of people just the way that you have done, just the way that God has used you to do that in me. You likewise, Christian, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You have seen the effects of the gospel in your life. And so, Jesus doesn't make it optional. He's not waiting for your aha moment. He commands you right now. You are part of the call. You are the messengers that God is calling with a loud trumpet call to gather His elect from the four winds. From the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. You are commissioned right now to go therefore on account of Jesus' dominion and make disciples of all the nations. That is not something that is reserved for the end times. That is something we are doing right now. Praise be to God. And, and so I wish that those of you who are bored with your job, bored with your life, could see the glorious mission that you've been entrusted with. Jesus is King, and you get to share what His kingdom is like, what this world will one day be like when Jesus renews and restores all things. I wish that those of you with broken relationships could believe Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he writes that because of the goodness of Jesus, you have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. You have been given 
this ministry. Yes, Jesus is the reconciler, but who does he use? Yes, Jesus saves, but who does he use? I don't know what that does for you, Christian, but that immediately destroys any sense of worthlessness that might creep into my heart. I don't know about you, but that, el- that eliminates any notion that I don't have any purpose in this world. Nothing can thwart God's plans. God will carry out His plans with or without you. Do not hear me saying God is depending on you. What I am saying is that God has given you the great dignity of being a part of His plans. You have a purpose. You have worth. You have a mission. And you are enabled in Jesus Christ to carry it out. So rejoice, church. The Lord is King. And and finally, maybe an underrated aspect of the dominion of Jesus is the certainty of it. In verse 35, Jesus says, clear as day, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth may change, but my words will remain the same. What a glorious promise. I I mean, Christian, what's the problem with anything you enjoy? Anything. Even good things. Problem is that they're not necessarily bad, but they're not eternal. They don't last. That show you're watching right now, it runs out of episodes eventually. That bowl of ice cream, unfortunately, has a bottom to it, right? Fin- uh, finish the phrase with me, right? It, it, I've been told, enjoy those kids of yours now. They grow up too fast, so fast. Oh, enjoy them. This doesn't last. So the question is, are you placing your hope? Are you, Christian, placing your hope in something temporary? Something that will pass away. Once I get this new car, this new house, this new boat, this new technology, this new job, then I'll be happy. Once I retire and I don't have a job, then I'll be happy. Then I can focus on my hobbies. You know, if I could just buckle down and strictly follow this diet and exercise plan, Then I would look the way I want, and then I would be happy. I'd be happy every time I looked in a mirror. Once I have a girlfriend, a boyfriend, once I'm married, once I have kids. Uh, Yeah, I see all of you smiling and laughing. You feel guilty. Yeah, it's funny. It's, It's hilarious to think that a spouse, children, can make us happy. Because they weren't meant to. They're not bad, they just weren't meant to. Because they don't. They weren't created to. It's like trying to shovel dirt with a rake. Wrong tool for the job. Trying to satisfy your deepest needs with something that does not last for eternity. Won't work. There's there's another reason though. It's not just that they, uh, that they don't last. It's just 
It's not, it's not worth the eternity that your heart was made for. Have you ever heard the term a sneakerhead? It, basically, it's someone who's really into sneakers, and they, they collect them, usually. I was watching a, a documentary-like video of a sneakerhead who, who learned the folly of what he spent his life doing. In this interview, he had in his hand one of the first pair of Jordans he ever collected. And what he did near the end of the video, as, as he was t- telling about all the money he spent, all the time he spent, how much his heart was in it, he followed, he ended the interview with this. He had his Jordans in his hand, and he just took his finger and rubbed it across the bottom. And what happened to the rubber and all the other materials in there just crumbled. These, these, these sneakers weren't even 30 years old. And I don't care what our youth say, something that's about 30 years old is not old. It's just hurtful. But there it was. The shoe that wasn't even 30 years old crumbling before our very eyes. I couldn't help but recall to mind Matthew chapter 6. Where Jesus tells you and he tells me, do not lay up treasures for yourself on heaven in heaven, where moth and rust destroy. But rather, because of the promise we have in Jesus, you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy. So Christian, what do we do? Right? How how do we obey God's word in this? Well, he says it right there. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And what does that look like? What does that look like? Do I spend less time in my job and more time with my family? Is that treasures in heaven? Do I spend less time golfing and more time doing Bible study? Is that treasures in heaven? I would suggest to you part of the reason that we can trust in Jesus' promise is because we can trust in Jesus' person. Jesus' promises are tied to his person. That's part of what we read in verses 32 and 33, where Jesus tells a story about a fig tree in verses 32 and 33. And we read, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. But now listen. So also... When you see all these things, which, by the way, they would see all these things. So you know this passage can't be about end times because they would see all these things. And when you see all these things, what do you know? Do you know that it is near? Do you know that the great day is near? Do you know that the tribulation is near? Do you know that judgment is near? No, you know that he is near. That's the promise. When you see all these things, when you see all these terrible, terrible things, don't worry. Jesus is near. You know that He is near. That's meant to be a comfort, Christian. That's not meant to make you worry. That's not meant to make you watch the news more carefully. It's meant to comfort you and reassure you. Because promises can only last as long as the person giving them. If I promise my children that I will always protect them, 
that promise dies the moment I do. I can no longer protect them if I'm dead. But the promise that Jesus is making is that if he has dominion, if he is in control of all that is happening, then he will not let anything happen outside of his will, outside of his dominion. When Jesus says that his words will not pass away, what he's actually saying is he will not pass away. That's why when Jesus' dominion is promised in the Old Testament, it's always coupled with a time frame. So if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, for example, you see this in, uh, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. You see in verse 13 that God will establish a house for his name. And he will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. In Daniel 7, when we read about the dominion Jesus receives, what do we read in Daniel 7 verse 14? That his dominion is an everlasting dominion. What do we see about his dominion? It will not pass away. What's the comfort that you have about the dominion of Jesus your Savior? That his kingdom is not one that will be destroyed. You can count on it. You can be confident, Christian. You can center your life, not around sneakers, not around cars, not around the latest hobby you've picked up, but around Jesus, around the person of Jesus. You can engage in spreading the good news of Jesus because his kingdom will last forever. It will not be toppled. But again, your comfort is not just that Jesus is sitting up on his throne. Your comfort is that and more. Your comfort is that Jesus is also with us, comforting us, guiding us, interceding for us. That's why we read in one last verse, Ephesians chapter 1. You read this beautiful promise. Paul writes to the church, In Christ, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed, past tense, by the way, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I get this wonderful question mostly from, from our youth. How can I know that I'll be saved? How can I know that these promises apply to me? Is it through my actions? Somewhat. The fruits? Sure. Is it through how much I study the Bible? Mostly it is through the promise, Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire. Christian, we should not only rejoice that the Lord is King right now, which is cause enough for celebration. We should also rejoice that this King is with us and guarantees us a rich inheritance through His Spirit. That's why I appreciate the song we're about to sing in a moment. The song we're about to sing in a moment has four verses. In verse 2 of How Firm a Foundation, you read, Fear not. Why? I am with you. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. Why? For I will be with you. The soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, 
Though every fiber of being in all of hell should attack you with all of their might, what's your promise? It is the guarantee that Jesus the King who has dominion will never, no never, no never forsake. That is your promise. That is good news. And church, that is cause for rejoicing. Amen? Rejoice. The Lord is King. Pray with me.